This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the late end of July. Um, we're going to start with reports from the Indian Mutiny starting on the 21st of July 1857. This is a report of an officer in General Havelock's relieving force. The mutiny had begun at Meerut but spread to other cities including Kompore where the Nanu Saab the native ruler massacred the entire garrison, including 200 women and children, who were hacked to death in a house known as Bibigar. And this is the report. I was directed to the house where all the poor, miserable ladies had been murdered. It was alongside the Kornpori Hotel where the Nana, i.e. the Nana Sahib, lived. I never was more horrified. The place was one mass of blood. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that the soles of my boots were more than covered with the blood of those poor, wretched creatures. Portions of their dresses, collars, children's socks and ladies' round hats lay about, saturated with their blood. And in the sword cuts on the wooden pillars of the room, long, dark hair was carried by the edge of the weapon, and there hung their tresses, a most painful sight." I've often wished, since, that I had never been there, but sometimes wished that every soldier was taken there, that he might witness the barbarities our poor countrywoman had suffered. Their bodies were afterwards dragged out and thrown down a well outside the building where their limbs were to be seen sticking out in a mass of gory confusion. Those poor ladies were massacred on the 15th, after we had thrashed the blackguards at the bridge, the collector who gave the order for their death was taken prisoner the day before yesterday and now hangs from a branch about 200 yards off the roadside. His death was, accidentally, a most painful one for the rope was badly adjusted and when he dropped the noose closed over his jaw. His hands then got loose and he caught hold of the rope and struggled to get free but two men took hold of his legs and jerked his body until his neck broke. This seems to me the just reward he should have got on earth for his barbarity. General Havelock takes up the story on the retribution for the massacre. Whenever a rebel is caught, he is immediately tried, and unless he can prove a defence, he is sentenced to be hanged at once. But the chief rebels, or ringleaders, I make first clean up a certain portion of the pool of blood, still two inches deep, in the shed where the fearful murder and mutilation of women and children took place. To touch blood is most abhorrent to our, the high-caste natives. They think by doing so they doom their souls to perdition. Let them think so. My object is to inflict a fearful punishment for a revolting, cowardly, but bar barbarous deed, and to strike terror into these rebels. The first I caught was a Zubadar, or native officer, a high-caste Brahmin, who tried to resist my order to clean up the very blood he had helped to shed. But I made the provost marshal do his duty, and a few lashes soon made the miscreant accomplish his task. When done, he was taken out and immediately hanged, and after death buried in a ditch at the roadside. No one who has witnessed the scenes of murder, mutilation and massacre can ever listen to the word mercy as applied to these fiends. 
the well of mutilated bodies, alas, containing upwards of 200 women and children, have decently covered in and built up as one large grave. And finally, on the mutiny, we have Adelaide Case's report about household arrangements in the besieged Lucknow in 1857. The siege at Lucknow had lasted from the 1st of July to the 17th of November when Sir Colin Campbell's relieving force entered the city. And this is dated Thursday the 20th of August. A good deal of shelling has been going on this morning, but it's mostly our own. It rained in the evening a good deal. A poor little child next door to us died of cholera. It was only taken ill about one o'clock. It was dead before seven. The poor mother was in a dreadful state just before it died, and afterwards perfectly calm. While we were undressing, she came and asked if we had an empty box we, we could give her to bury the poor little thing in. We hadn't got one long enough. The following week, Thursday the 27th of August. Colonel Inglis had a most merciful escape last night. He was standing on the bastion at Mr Gubbins' house, close to Mr Webb, when he was killed. They saw the round shot coming and went down to avoid it, but it hit Mr Webb and a native who was with him, killing them both instantaneously. It makes one shudder to think how death is hovering about and around us all. Busy indeed has he been amongst this little garrison. Mrs Thornhill had a little girl last night. Sir Henley Lawrence's things are being sold today. He'd recently been killed. Heard of a ham being sold for seven pounds and a tin of soup sufficient only for one day's dinner for one pound five shillings. Money has ceased to be of any value and people are giving unheard of prices for stores of any kind. One dozen brandy, twenty pounds. One small box of vermicelli, five pounds. Four small cakes of chocolate, two pound ten shillings. Monday. 5th of October. Today we've begun to restrict ourselves to two chapatis each a day, and soon, I fear, we shall have to eat horse flesh. But as yet we have beef and rice. I've been hungry today, and could have eaten more had I had it. Seven men and three officers came in today from the Furied Books, badly wounded. Mrs. Roberts came to see us this morning, and told us the chloroform at the hospital is all gone. Mrs. Omelie's children... Both died in one hour a day or two ago. Sunday, 18th of October. We've been out of soap for some days and are now obliged to wash with what is called basson, which is ground grain made into paste with water. It's a nice clean thing and the best substitute for soap. Before we go on, it's worth saying, of course, that these are collected eyewitnesses' reports from the time as people saw them and they felt then and all the other things that people might object to in by modern hearing. We move on to the Nazi extermination camp at Majdanek on the 23rd of July 1944. On the outskirts of Lublin, Poland, Majdanek was converted into an extermination camp for Jews in 1942. According to some estimates, around one and a half million died there. At first, victims were disposed of in mass shootings. Later, gas chambers using Zyklon B were built. After the rebellion at Zobibor extermination camp in November 43, the prisoners at Majdanek were killed and the SS tried to obliterate traces of the massacre. This is Alexander Wirth's report. My first reaction to Majdanek was a feeling of surprise. I'd imagined something horrible and sinister beyond words. It was nothing like that. 
It looks singularly harmless from outside. Is that it? was my first reaction when we stopped at what looked like a large workers' settlement. Behind us was the many-towered skyline of Lublin. There was much dust on the road and the grass was a dull, greenish-grey colour. The camp was separated from the road by a couple of barbed wire fences, but these did not look particularly sinister and might have been put up outside any military or semi-military establishment. The place was large, like a whole town of barracks painted a pleasant soft green. There were many people around, soldiers, civilians. A Polish sentry opened the barbed wire gate and let to let our cars enter the central avenue with large green barracks on either side. And then we stopped outside a large barrack marked Bart und Disinfection Zwei. This, somebody said, is where large numbers of those arriving at the camp were brought in. The inside of this barrack was made of concrete and water taps came out of the wall and around the room there were benches where clothes were put down and afterwards collected. So this was the place into which they were driven. Or perhaps they were politely invited to step this way, please. Did any of them suspect, while washing themselves after a long journey, what would happen a few minutes later? Anyway, after the washing was over, they were asked to go into the next room. At this point, even the most unsuspecting must have begun to wander, for the next room was a series of large square concrete structures, each about one quarter of the size of the bathhouse, and, unlike it, had no windows. The naked people, men one time, women another, children the next, were driven or forced from the bathhouse into these dark concrete boxes about five yards square and then, with 200 or 250 people packed into each box and it was completely dark there except for a small skylight in the ceiling and the spy hole in the door, the process of gassing began. First some hot air was pumped in from the ceiling and then the pretty pale blue crystals of Zyklon were showered down on the people and in the hot, wet air they rapidly evaporated. In anything from two to ten minutes everybody was dead. There were six concrete boxes, gas chambers, side by side. Nearly two thousand people could be disposed of here simultaneously, one of the guards said. But what thoughts passed through these people's minds during those first few minutes while the crystals were falling? Could anyone still believe that this humiliating process of being packed into a box and standing there naked, rubbing backs with other naked people, had anything to do with disinfection? At first it was all very hard to take in without an effort of the imagination. There were a number of very dull-looking concrete structures which, if their doors had been wider, might anywhere else have been mistaken for a row of nice little garages. But the doors, the doors, they were heavy steel doors and each had a heavy steel bolt. And in the middle of the door was a spy hole, circled three inches in diameter, composed of about a hundred small holes. Could the people in their death agony see the SS man's eye as he watched them? Anyway, the SS man had nothing to fear. His eye was well protected by a steel netting over the spy hole. And like the proud maker of reliable safes, the maker of the door had put his name around the spy hole. Urt, Berlin. Then a touch of blue on the floor caught my eye. It was very faint, but still legible. In blue chalk, someone had scribbled the word Vagast and had drawn crudely above it the skull and crossbones. I'd never seen this word before, but it obviously meant gassed. And not merely gassed, but with that eloquent little prefix Wehr. Gassed out. That's this job finished. And now for the next lot. 
The blue chalk came into motion when there was nothing but a heap of naked courses inside. But what cries, what curses, what prayers perhaps had been uttered inside that gas chamber only a few minutes before. Yet the concrete walls were thick, and Herr Alt had done a wonderful job, so probably no one could hear anything from outside. And even if they did, the people in the camp knew what it was all about. It was here, outside Bart und Disinfektion 2, in the side lane leading into the central avenue, that the corpses were loaded into lorries covered with tarpaulins and carted to the crematorium at the other end of the camp, half a mile away. Between the two, there were dozens of barracks painted the same soft green. Some had notice boards outside, others hadn't. Thus, there was an Effektenkammer and a Frauenbekleidungskammer. Here, the victims' luggage and women's clothes were sorted out before they were sent to the central Lubin warehouse and then on to Germany. At the other end of the camp, there were enormous bounds of white ashes. As you looked closer, you found they were not perfect ashes, for they had among them some masses of small human bones, collarbones, finger bones, and bits of skulls, and even a small femur, which can only have been that of a child. And beyond these mounds there was a sloping plain on which there grew acres and acres of cabbages. They were large, luxuriant cabbages, covered with a layer of white dust. As I heard someone explaining, layer of manure, then layer of ashes, that's the way it was done, these cabbages are all grown on human ashes. The SS men used to cart most of the ashes to their model farm some distance away. A well-run farm, the SS men liked to eat these overgrown cabbages, and the prisoners ate these cabbages too, although they knew that they would almost certainly be turned into cabbages themselves before long. The Chopin warehouse was like a vast five-storey department store, part of the grandiose Maidenek murder factory. Here, the possessions of hundreds of thousands of murdered people were sorted and classified and packed for export to Germany. In one big room there were thousands of trunks and suitcases, some still with carefully written out labels. There was a room marked Herrenschuhe and another marked Damenschuhe. There were even thousands of pairs of shoes, all of much better quality than those seen in the big dump near the camp. Then there was a long corridor with thousands of women's dresses and another with thousands of overcoats. Another room had large wooden shelves all along it, though the centre had it along the walls. It was like being in a Woolworths store. Here were piled up hundreds of safety razors and shaving brushes and thousands of pen knives and pencils. In the next room were piled up children's toys, teddy bears, celluloid doils and tin automobiles by the hundred and simple jigsaw puzzles and an American-made Mickey Mouse and so on, and so on. In a junk heap, I even found a manuscript of a violin sonata, Opus 15, by somebody called Ernst J. Weil of Prague. What hideous story was behind this? We go back a, a further 80 years to July the 24th, 1866, and a story in the Daily Telegraph headlined Rioting in Hyde Park. The intended meeting in Hyde Park last evening on the subject of the reform bill was stopped by the police. And so was the passage of four public roads at a time when the traffic is generally heaviest and on this occasion was certain to be six times as heavy as usual. It was the evident plan of the police to make a show of their strength rather than to keep it in hidden readiness. 
The people were taking their measures with excellent temper and with the best feeling of respect for the law as they interpret its bearing on the subject of dispute. Pasquinades of the rough and ready character of street wit had found their way into print and were shown in shop windows or stuck against posts and walls. One of these, with the catching headline, wanted 10,000 costermongers mounted on their donkeys to parade Rotten Row for the purpose of testing the question as to whether this or any other portion of Hyde Park belongs to a class or the entire people. For some time after the closing of the gates, the people who were prevented entering merely clustered around and looked through the railings. After a time, however, as the assembly increased, the people mounted the dwarf wall and many climbed the iron railings to look into the park. From the great pressure of an eager crowd, the railings began to sway backwards and forwards, and this being perceived, those who had rushed to the top hastily descended, and each person grasping a rail, the whole went to work and deliberately increased the motion until a length of fifty yards toppled over into the park. Further attempts to break down the railings were successful. As fast as the police lined a breach, similar movements were attempted at other points, and it soon became apparent that the idea of keeping people out of Hyde Park, if they wished to come in, was futile. The crowd had been growing so much more dense, and their aggressive spirits so much more decidedly manifested, that it was deemed prudent to send for the military. After the arrival of the military force, the skirmishing may be said to have come to an end. Well, we go back to the end of World War II and a report from General Byerline from the 24th, 25th of July, 1944. After establishing the Normandy Bridgehead and taking Saint-Lô on the 18th of July, the Americans broke through the defences at Avranche on the 31st of July. This account is by the general commanding the Panzer Division that opposed them as I say, written on the 24th, 25th of July, by German General Bayerlein. By about 23rd of July, the American troops had gained suitable jump-off positions for their offensive and had taken Saint-Lô. Panzer Division held a 6,000-yard sector west of the town and, by allocating only weak reserves, had formed a defence zone of 4,000 yards in depth. The 50 or 60 tanks and self-propelled anti-tank guns still remaining to the division were deployed in static positions as armoured anti-tank guns and the Panzer Grenadiers were well dug in on their field positions. On the 24th of July, 400 American bombers attacked our sector, but without doing much damage. My AA battalion even managed to shoot down 10 of their aircraft. The expected ground attack didn't come. But on the next day, there followed one of the heaviest blows delivered by the Allied Air Forces in a tactical role during the whole of the war. I learnt later from American sources that on the 25th of July, a force consisting of 1,600 flying fortresses and other bombers had bombed the Panzerlehrs sector from 9 in the morning until around midday. Units holding the front were almost completely wiped out, despite in many cases the best possible equipment of tanks, anti-tank guns and self-propelled guns. Back and forth the bomb carpets were laid, artillery positions were wiped out, tanks overturned and buried, infantry positions flattened and all roads and tracks destroyed. By midday, the entire area resembled a moon landscape, with the bomb craters touching rim to rim and there was no longer any hope of getting out any of our weapons. All signal communications had been cut and no command was possible. 
The shock effect on the troops was indescribable. Several of the men went mad and rushed dementedly round in the open until they were cut down by splinters. Simultaneous with the storm from the air, innumerable guns of the American artillery poured drum fire into our field positions. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org.